morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Paul Mumon. I'm the lead pastor here, and um, I'd love to be just kind of honest, a little transparent with you uh, for just a moment, you know, especially in light of, you know, what Kevin was talking about, and, you know, even as we were singing there a moment ago, um, as your pastor, um, I just want you to know that I'm always feeling the pressure of how much we should talk about current events. And uh, I, I don't think that's anything that I, I share is unique to me and you know, other staff, other pastors at other churches. But, I mean, it's like this. When something newsworthy happens, you know, the question comes up, well, how, how do we address it? Should we, should we talk about this on Sunday? Should we take time in our service to pray about it? Do we, do we write a message around it or maybe scrap everything all together that we were planning to do and, and, and talk about, you know, whatever it event it was that dominated the news in the past week or you know, again, do we just completely ignore it? Do we move on? And uh, again, do you, you it just, again, it's always trying to better learn and understand, you know, what, what, what's it mean to hear from the Lord and to really let him lead us uh, and to lead our church. And so I just say that, I, like, I want you to know how real the tension is. And, uh, and again, a number of us feel this, uh, if not weekly, uh, for sure monthly. But then something really significant happens. And uh, we all know what happened uh, last Sunday night, Monday morning, um, the largest mass shooting in the U.S. And man, when you hear about something like that, I mean, you have to pause and think, okay, this is probably something that we should address. And so I want you to know that this past week, our team prayed about this. We, uh, those teaching and, and that tend to teach here, we, we, we agonize and we struggle a little bit about what, what do you talk about, what do you say? And I think the Lord laid something on our heart, uh, my heart, for this morning uh, to share with you. I'm, I'm putting all of my confidence in it, uh, and it's a message from Him. I, I'm praying. I'm hoping that it's a message that is able to really speak to the events of the day, but still point us to the hope that we have in Jesus, all right, the hope that we have in Christ, in a Savior, that He came, that the Lord came. He sent His Son to free us from worry. Uh, he, he sent his son to free us from doubt and to give us a perspective on life in this world that really makes all the difference, uh, changes everything. So I hope it does that for you today. I'm, I'm really believing and trusting that the Lord has a message for us, for you, for me, all right, and that we can find hope, we can find encouragement and even direction in it today. And so that's been my prayer. There's this uh, one event. It's a unique little event, kind of obscure event that gets noted uh, in Scripture um, where Jesus addressed a particular current event. And I don't know if you've caught this before. Maybe you have if you've spent some time reading through the Gospels. But there was a tragedy uh, that actually happened in Israel where there was an apparent accident. And we're not for sure whether uh, it could have been a an act of terrorism, I guess you could have called it that. Uh, but there was this tower in Israel that is just simply referred to as the Tower of Siloam. And there were some Jews. Jewish people that had gathered there, and this large tower fell over on the crowd, killing 18 people. And believe it or not, there were some people in the area that uh, will seem to be claiming that it was their fault that they got killed, that those that were present, that somehow their sin had caused this particular tragedy. And I want you to watch how Jesus addresses this in Luke chapter 13, uh, in verse, starting in verse 4. Look at how Jesus references this before the, the, these people. He says, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Look at Jesus' emphatic response. I tell you, no. Those were Jesus' words. Jesus lays this theory to rest in this occasion. It's, he, he points out that it wasn't their personal sin that caused this tragedy, but I want to show you what he does next because it's fascinating not only what he does, but what he doesn't do. 
He doesn't propose solutions. Uh, uh, Jesus doesn't talk about how we should build towers that are more resistant to these kinds of accidents. He doesn't tell us to stay away from towers altogether. In fact, he doesn't even talk about the event. But he focuses on the people and he focuses on the listeners. And look what he says there in the last part of verse 5. He says, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And so Jesus said, repent. Turn back to God. He's basically saying, make sure your life is in order. All right, make sure you know what's most important. And so Jesus says, repent. He says, in effect, you know what? For you and I, we'll never know when tragedy might strike. And most of us will never know when, uh, you know, that moment is going to come, the end of our life. But it's inevitable, right? I mean, the last time I checked, the mortality rate in the U.S. was right around 100%. All right, everyone dies. And you know, I hope and pray that, you know, your time might not be coming soon, but it's coming. It's coming for me. It's coming for each of us. And so Jesus, here in his love and compassion for the listeners of the day and really for us too, says the best thing that you can do for your life is to be ready for the end, to get things in order. He says, repent, basically stay close to God, uh, turn back to God, confess and repent of the sin in your life. And do your best on any and every occasion to model Jesus, all right? To model Jesus for the people you encounter, for the situations that you find yourself in, for your own children. We will do our best to model our Savior Jesus Christ in this world. Hey, we all know there is so much going on in our world right now. It, it is frightening. I mean, it really is frightening. And that, does, you know, even as we think about this last week and as we, you know, hear more and more stories of hurricanes and natural disasters and certainly tension around the world and all of the political chaos, and it doesn't even touch what's going on in your home. It doesn't even touch what's happening in your life right now. And because of these things, we shouldn't be surprised that any number of emotions cover this room this morning. We could name them off, things like fear or anger or resentment or frustration desperation or confusion, you name it, all right? Every emotion, I'm sure, touches this room today in some way or form. Well, here's the thing. Interestingly enough, the Jews in Jesus' day struggled with many of the same questions and emotions that we do too. They were living under the brutal oppression of the Roman Empire, and so therefore, they were all familiar with violence. They were all familiar with chaos and tragedy and uncertainty, and many of these experiences in their life had given, given way to attitudes like cynicism, uh, attitudes of hatred, of, of fear, of desperation, of, of anxiety, and so these people that we're going to see Jesus encounter today, they were looking for a solution. They were looking for answers to their questions, all right? They were asking great questions, and they were holding out for hope, as many of us do the same. And so I want to take a look at a passage of Scripture with you this morning. I'm thankful that this is the passage of Scripture we intended to talk about this morning. But I believe the Lord knew that he wanted to use this particular selection of verses for us today, all right, to really kind of set our minds straight, to set our hearts straight really what we should be focusing on in a time like this. So if you've got your Bible, uh, open to Luke chapter 4. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all right, the third book of the New Testament. If you're going to use one of the Bibles around the room on the floor, it's page 718. Quickly, we've been in this series called In the Flesh. If you're new with us today, we're just simply tracing the steps of Jesus, the life of Jesus, really from his baptism to the cross and eventually his ascension into heaven. And we've been doing some geography 
and you may or may not have any interest in geography whatsoever. I sort of think it's fascinating. I've heard some of you that maybe you've been enjoying it as well, but we have found this map to be helpful for us in just kind of telling the story. Certainly, this is Israel, if you haven't figured it out yet, but we know that Jesus grew up as a child, as a teen, as a young adult in Nazareth, and as we talked about a few weeks ago, he's going to make his way down the Jordan River Valley where he'll be baptized near the Dead Sea, near a place called Bethany Beyond the Jordan by John the Baptist. He immediately goes into the wilderness where he'll spend 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. He's going to come out of that time victorious, not having given in. He's going to call his first disciples. Many of them were following John the Baptist. They're going to follow Jesus back to the north near Nazareth to a place called Cana. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, a a wedding that took place there, Jesus' first public miracle in turning water to wine. Then the disciples are going to follow him back to Jerusalem. As any good devout Jew would do, they would always return to Jerusalem for the the major festivals. And so they're going to come back. Jesus is going to cleanse the temple here. And as Ben talked about last week, rather than return the way that most people traveled up the Jordan River Valley, the text says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now this is Samaria, and Jesus is going to go to a place called Sakar, where he's going to encounter the woman at the well. If you didn't get a chance to hear last week's message from our campus pastor, Ben, check it out. It was fantastic. We talked about racism. We talked about our responsibilities as followers of Christ in, in overcoming racism, all right, calling it out when we see it. But as Jesus finishes up here, as we're going to find today, he and his disciples are going to return to this region, which is referred to as Galilee, all right? The entire region, the Sea of Galilee being in the center, but this region surrounding it is known as, is referred to as Galilee. Let's pick it up in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Luke likes to provide an orderly account. So there are names and places and occasions. Look what he says in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee, all right? He's coming back to this region. In the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now, this is a very important place, not only in Israel, but really for the rest of the world. Galilee served as a crossroads, really, to all of the traffic in this portion of the world. There was a, 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 tr- a route, uh, a north-south route, that people would always travel on their way to Jerusalem, and so that was an important uh, roadway. There was also a roadway over here on the west side of Israel along the Mediterranean Sea that's often referred to as the Via Maris or the Way of the Sea. This was a uh, major or a very uh, important uh, trafficked area for people traveling to Egypt or coming from Egypt making their way uh, into the rest of the Roman Empire. But then also to the east, just on the other side of the Jordan River in present-day Jordan, there was a road that is referred to as the King's Highway. And the King's Highway would connect the Roman Empire to Israel and also to Arabia, and sometimes people would even travel to Egypt as a part of it. So basically the point is this. This is strategic. This is a strategic location, all right? Again, this crossroads for all these travelers, the historian Josephus, who once governed this area uh, of um, Galilee, has recorded that there were approximately 204 villages and towns in Galilee, and that as many as 3 million people lived in the region, all right? But again, it's strategic, and here's why. This is the land where Jesus would begin his preaching ministry. And so not only does he have potentially 3 million people to minister to, but there's all sorts of traffic. 
from all over the world, people passing through, and just the opportunity to get the message out to the rest of the world. And how did Jesus get the message out? Well, Luke records for us. What's he say? He says he taught regularly in their synagogues, and there are synagogues all over Galilee. I've got a picture, a few pictures from my trip in May. This is the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, we'll talk about Capernaum a little bit more next week. This is going to become a, ma- uh, a ministry center for Jesus, all right? And so Jesus certainly would have taught on this foundation in Capernaum. Uh, this next picture will show a, a synagogue we visited in Gamla. Uh, Gamla is located in the present-day uh, Golan Heights, all right? And Gamla is up in the hills. It's up in the mountains. We don't know for sure if Jesus traveled to Gamla, but one of his disciples, Simon the Zealot, was from Gamla. And so if Jesus was preaching and teaching in the synagogues around Galilee, there's a really good chance that Jesus traveled up into the mountains to Gamla. And then this last one here is actually the uh, synagogue in Chorazin. Chorazin is just to the north of Capernaum. And again, you know, Jesus likely would have spent time when Luke records that he was teaching and preaching in their synagogues. All right, there's a really good chance that Jesus was teaching even in this place in Chorazin. Now, synagogues grew up during the exile period. In the Old Testament, when Jews no longer had a temple, all right, when their temple no longer existed, and so they, they built the synagogue. Uh, it became a center for worship on the Sabbath, but also a school by which you could teach young kids, especially the young boys, and even as they became uh, teens. Jewish law said that if there were 10 families living in an approximate or in proximity to each other, well, then you could have a synagogue, all right, even just by 10 families. So again, they're all over the place. Now, a leader administered the synagogue, but it's not like today where you had assigned pastors in synagogues. And so visiting rabbis or teachers passing through the area would teach as they traveled from town to town. That's what Jesus is doing. All right, that's what he's doing here. Jesus was earning a reputation all around Galilee as a respected teacher and rabbi, and everyone praised him. And as Luke records, news started spreading rapidly through the region. And what made his teaching so effective? I don't know if you caught it there in verse 14. We read just a moment ago, but Luke says he was filled with the Holy Spirit's power. All right, the presence of God was in him. The power of God was on his life. Look at verse 16. What's he do next? It says he went to Nazareth. And so he's going to come down here to Nazareth, and Luke records this is where he had been brought up. Now, here's another picture of one particular morning uh, in Israel, and we are sitting here on what is called the Hill of Moreh. If you know your book of Judges at all, if you've studied the story of Gideon, Gideon is going to defeat the Midianites in this region on the hill of Moray. It was really fun to sit here this morning for our teacher just to bring to life all of these different locations. This is the Jezreel Valley passing through. It extends from the Sea of Galilee all the way over here to the Mediterranean. But this village down to our right is the village of Nain. This is where Jesus raised the widow's son from the dead. And then he pointed out, oh yeah, and over on that hill on the other side of the valley is Nazareth. All right, that's where Jesus grew up. And so again, just fun to see all that come to life. Nazareth is certainly a larger city today, but back then, uh, some estimate that Nazareth might not have been any bigger than a village of 200 people. But again, the important thing is that this is Jesus' hometown. And so he's been teaching and preaching throughout Galilee, and now he's going back to his 
hometown where he grew up. Again, these are his people. And because of its location in Galilee, news would have quickly spread to Nazareth about what Jesus was doing and preaching. And they would have likely heard about the miracles that he had performed. And so it's safe to say that Jesus was somewhat of a celebrity in returning to his hometown. The people were anticipating his return. Look at at verse 16 again. He goes to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. Now, again, Jesus was a rabbi, but he was also a faithful Jew. All right? And so every week on the Sabbath, he would go to the synagogue. And we've got every reason to believe that this synagogue in Nazareth was packed. All right? And Jesus is going to play a role in this particular service. Now, here's how a typical traditional Sabbath service would work in the synagogue. There, you know, even like our services would have been a time of worship, all right, where, and would have been a singing from things like the Psalms and a recitation of the Shema, which speaks of devotion to God. There would be a reading of Scripture, all right, and a visiting rabbi would be the one to come and you would stand all right, as you read from the, the scripture, and then there would be a message, and typically the visiting rabbi would give the message, and then there would be a closing benediction. And so this is what's happening with Jesus, all right? He's the visiting rabbi, and when the appropriate time in the service came, the attendant, all right, as Luke records, walked over, would have walked over to the holy ark, reached in, pulled out at least one of the scrolls, unrolled it to a designated place, and handed it to the rabbi. And so you can imagine, you can picture Jesus receiving the scroll. Again, picture a room packed full of people, and so likely men and women, teens and kids. And don't take away their humanity either, all right? Remember, these are suffering people. These people have gone through a lot of hardship. There's a lot of uncertainty All right, they're living in difficult times, trying to make sense of it all, and so there's certainly fear, and there's discouragement, and there's anxiety, and depression, and hope, desperation, you name it. Every emotion must have covered that synagogue, and then Jesus reads, and we pick it up in verse 17, but I'll tip you off. These are words directly from Isaiah chapter 61. And look what happens. Look at what Luke records. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. He, Jesus, found the place where it is written. And then Jesus read aloud, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And here's the thing. You know what? If you're sitting in the crowd that day, do you know what your reaction is to Jesus reading from those words? You're thinking, yeah, that's a good one, all right? These are good words. We know those words. They knew those words. They had read those words, heard those, many, those words many times now. They knew and realized that these words had been passed down for centuries now. These were words that were first spoken in another difficult period of Israel's history when Israel was prisoner to the Babylonian Empire. And so these words were given by God, originally spoken through the prophet Isaiah. They were meant to bring hope, and they pointed to a day when God would send a Messiah, when he would send a savior, his son to the world, someone who, who would come and to, would initiate the process of making things right once and for all and setting the people free from their sin. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. And he had their attention, but it's what happens next that really struck a chord for the people. Pick it up in verse 20. It says, then he rolled up the scroll 
gave it back to the attendant and sat down, which that's not what gets people's attention because to sit down was an indicator that he's ready to teach. Right? That's the proper posture for a rabbi in the ancient world. You would sit down to teach, but look what happens next. Again, verse 20, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Cue the sound of a screeching record player, whatever it is, drop the mic. Jesus said, fulfilled. Big announcement. Jesus says, I'm the one. I'm the one. Hundreds of years before that Isaiah was speaking about, I, I'm the Savior. I'm the Messiah. I'm God's promised one who has come to make all things new and to set the captives free. Let's quickly just look at those words from Isaiah 61. We'll look them right there in Luke's account. If you want to turn to Isaiah 61, you can. But Luke chapter 4, verse 17, again, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, meaning the very power and presence of God is in me and on my life. Jesus said, He has anointed me, basically that I have been designated. I have been set apart by God as King and as Messiah. And what has He anointed me to do? Jesus says, To bring the good news. The good news of the world is that forgiveness is available. The good news is that peace with God is available through Jesus Christ. God's, the, the good news is that God's kingdom is here and that he is using me and he's going to use you to put all of the pieces back together to set the people free. And who's the message for? Well, while not an exhaustive list, Jesus paints a picture. He starts off by saying the poor. He was talking about those who are struggling with material possessions or the lack of material possessions, but was certainly talking about those who were spiritually poor. He refers to the cat. Captives. This word captives here literally means the prisoners of the war, all right? The prisoners of the war. This is the hurting. This is those that would say they are broken. This is those that would say they are abused and let down. The word captive represents people in bondage, bondage to things like money, bondage into to things like guilt and pleasure and addiction and fear and hate, in bondage to anything other than God. Jesus says the blind. See, Jesus came, all right, to open the eyes of the blind. The, he's talking about those that, that, that can't even see beyond their own circumstances in life. Jesus says, I want to be the light to help lead people through it all. He came to lead people out of darkness. He came to lead us into the light, and then he says the oppressed. And that's just basically a reference to those who feel squashed by life's circumstances, that he's available to those that see no way out of the situation they find themselves in. And then he declares the time of the Lord's favor has come. We could spend weeks talking about what that means, but basically this is a reference to what the Jews knew as the year of Jubilee. It was something that came along every 50 years. It was a time, it was a year, a moment when debts were canceled. It meant debts were forgiven and wiped out, that slaves were set free once and for all. And Jesus says, it's me. He says to this crowd of people in the synagogue of Nazareth, I'm the Messiah. I'm God's promised one. I'm the Savior of the world sent by God to offer you grace to offer you forgiveness, to offer you hope. And while he doesn't say it here, we know that that means that he'll eventually go to the cross 
And it's on the cross that he's going to give his life to atone for the sins of this world. But let's not forget that Jesus came to do more than die, as important as his death is for each and every one of us. He also came to show us how to live. He came to show us how to live. He, he came to help us understand what it means to see ourselves and to, to see our way through, even in difficult times like these. And so he came for faith, for the faith of the people then, for you and me. He came to establish God's kingdom on earth, to make things right, to put the pieces back together. And you know what? Those words that he had in mind for the people 2,000 years ago were the same words. It's the same truth that he has for us today. He's invited us into that life. He's invited us into that perspective, that way of seeing things in this world and the work that he wants us to invite to do with him. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're sitting in that synagogue listening to Jesus with your story and with your circumstances and to hear him speak to the poor and hear him speak to the oppressed, hear him speak to the captives and to the blind. What, what would it mean? What would it mean for you and me even today to embrace these words of Jesus and this promise from him for our lives, for your life. Again, for whatever you find yourself in. See, no matter how you see it right now, no matter what emotion you're currently experiencing, no matter what situation you find yourself in, whether it be fear, whether it be anxiety, whether it be a, a time of desperation, depression, or hopelessness, or anger, what would it mean for you to know and believe that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, his Messiah, his Savior, and he came to lead the work of making things right in this world. He came to give his life on the cross so that you could be forgiven, so that we could be forgiven. He came to set us free. He came to cancel the debts. I don't know what that does to you, but if you're a little like me, if I'm honest, you know, again, you read the details of what took place in Vegas and people trying to sort through what, why it happened, what's the mode of all this and that. I can't help but think at times, how, how in the world can this happen? Like, you know, how, how can a hurricane cause so much devastation? How, how could someone do something like this? I, I struggle with those questions. I wrestle with these things. But if I'm honest with you, when I look at it in the light of the greater story of this world, it does make sense. Because we live in a broken world, right? We live in a broken world with broken people. Uh, Galatians chapter 1 verse 4, Paul says that we are living in an evil age, he reminds us. He goes on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 2 to tell us that we live in a world full of wickedness and evilness and evil people. Uh, and there are not just evil people in the world, but we live in a world, as 1 Peter 5, 8 reminds us, a world where, where the devil is like a lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. And remember, it was Jesus himself who said in John 10 that Satan's goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. And so add to that from what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he reminds us that Satan works hard, all right, to blind the minds of the unbelievers so that they can't see the light of the gospel, the light that Jesus is proclaiming here. And then he goes on to say, Paul does in Ephesians chapter 6, to say that this is a spiritual battle. We are living in a day and an age of a spiritual battle, and so therefore our fight is not against flesh and blood but it is against the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil. See, here's the thing, and I think we all know this. For now, the world is still broken. All right, creation is out of order. 
Wars threaten. Cancer takes the lives of so many. Shootings happen. All right? Accidents take lives. And I'm not suggesting in any way that we should get used to it. All right? Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we should overlook it, get used to it, pretend that it doesn't sting, you know, wrestle with these questions and these emotions. But what I'm saying is that this isn't a time to be afraid. All right? This isn't a time to retreat. We can't lose hope. All right, we, we've got to keep our hope, we've got to keep our focus on the prize that is Jesus Christ. Because if you lose your faith in Jesus Christ in this world, what do you have left? What can you turn to? And so friends, let's, let's, let's keep our faith in Jesus. Let's put our faith in Jesus Christ and keep it there. And we need to, at the very same time, embrace our call and responsibility as followers of Jesus. Because the message for the people 2,000 years ago is the same true message today. And it's this, that in Jesus Christ, God wins. All right? It is that God wins. All right? Yeah, amen. Bless God. I mean, death has been defeated. All right, and Jesus came to set the captives free. And so when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we share in the victory. We share in the victory that God made possible through the death and the resurrection of his son in this world. You need to know today that this world is temporary. This world is a temporary place, and you and I are going to go through difficult times. Jesus said, in this world, you will encounter trouble, but take heart, have hope, because there will come a day, and Jesus Christ is going to return, and on that day, every knee will bow and confess in this world that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. But here's the thing for us. For now, we need to be remembered. We need to remember and be reminded that we're not here by accident. All right, Genesis Church, followers of Christ, we have a critical part to play. All right, now more than ever, we need to love as we've been called to love. Uh, we need to go out with the motivation to be peacemakers in this world. We need to be willing and ready to share the love of Christ with others. We need to meet things like racism and hatred head on and rise above it. We need to be those, the, the church that identifies the hurting and the struggling in our community and serve them. We need to be the very best at compassion and generosity in these times. We need to make disciples who can make disciples so that we can reach the world. We need to be praying people, all right, so that we can say that we are a praying church, and we need to put our faith in Jesus Christ, and now more than ever, we need to follow his example in every moment, in every encounter, and in every situation, and for some of you today, and I just feel like I need to say this directly to some of you, for some of you today, you need to make him the Lord of your life, and for some of you, you've been messing around with that. And you listen to us talk about that all the time. And maybe you've got people in your life that are pointing to you and saying, you need, you need to surrender your life to Jesus. You need to repent of your sins and turn to God and receive his forgiveness and take up your part as a kingdom worker with Jesus in this world. See, God wins. Victory is ours through Jesus Christ, and he is making all things new, and so we need to do our part, all right? And we need to be people who are willing to help people find their way back to God, and you need to do that at your school and on your campus and where you work and in your neighborhood and in your family right now. And that's what Jesus was saying. That's what he was saying to these people even 2,000 years ago in this synagogue, and so he spoke these words from Isaiah 61 to his own peeps, all right? Like, this is his hometown, all right? This is where he had spent 30 years, and he followed them up by saying, and these words are fulfilled through me today. And again, remember, these people were desperate. They're looking for hope, and they're waiting for a Savior. But if you know the story, or if you read this story, and you can read some of these words on your own, they're going to turn on him. 
the reaction's not going to be positive because they just couldn't get their minds around Jesus being the one, which must say something about his humanity because they spent 30 years around Jesus Christ as he grew up as a boy and as a man. And again, if you continue in these verses, Jesus is going to say some really tough things to him, to them in this message, ultimately calling out their weak faith and having their priorities and all the wrong things. They're going to get so mad that look at what they try and do at the very end of this selection. Verse 28, it says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I don't know how he did that, all right? All right, we don't get those details, how that all came to be. But Luke just simply records he walked right through the crowd and he went on his way. And because the people rejected him and they were ready to kill him, he went on from Nazareth. And he'll come back. Jesus is going to escape. But he'll return to Nazareth at a later date. And we don't have time to look at this today. You might write this down, but you can read it for yourself in Mark chapter 6. All right, Jesus is going to come back to Nazareth after all this took place. And in Mark's account, there's just something really interesting there that I think happens. In Mark's account, it says that Jesus was amazed. All right, he was amazed at those few, and that's really the detail that you gather, those few that demonstrated faith in him, but maybe even more so, he was amazed at those who lacked faith. And so ultimately, he's rejected. And he's going to leave Nazareth, and he'll, he'll never come back, it says. He was amazed at the few that had faith, but maybe even a greater way, amazed by those who didn't. Can I ask you a question this morning? What would amaze Jesus about your faith? Would he be amazed at how great it is, or would he be amazed at how weak it is? I don't say that to guilt you. I just say that to get you thinking, and... I mean, I wrestled with that question. I found myself asking that question even this week. Like, do I, do I believe these words? Do I believe this? Do I trust Jesus in all of the circumstances in life, as difficult as that may be? And in spite of these things, will I make every effort to put my faith in the man of Jesus Christ, my Savior Jesus Christ, and do what I can to give him everything that I am in this world? That's what I want, you know. I hope that's what you want. I love what the Apostle Paul says, and maybe we'll find encouragement in these words before we close here this morning. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, kind of with all these things in mind. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Again, for those of you that have put your trust in Jesus. What's his encouragement? Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. We'd do well, wouldn't we, to make sure we keep ourselves in the word of God and with other believers and worshiping on Sunday morning so that we can keep our minds and our hearts on things above and not just on the worldly things around us. He says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God, sealed. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You see, it's all about Jesus. Everything that we are and hope to be It's all about Christ. And Jesus changes everything for us. The majority of that people that day in the synagogue in Nazareth are going to reject Jesus because they just couldn't see it. My prayer for you this morning is that we will have eyes to see 
and a desire to live for the Lord and that we won't give in and we won't give up and we'll put our faith in Jesus and we'll encourage one another and we'll keep our faith in Jesus and we'll allow our faith in him to influence everything we do and say in this world. You know, in trying to figure out how to close today, you can always work on writing an appropriate conclusion, but I think the idea just came up for our team this week of, let's just turn to the very word of God. And, uh, you know, it was David that said, your word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me, if you would. And there's a, a selection of verses in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, where the Apostle Paul just reminds us of the foundation. All right, the foundation that we must build our lives upon, Jesus Christ in this world. And I'm going to ask you to read these verses with me before we close. And if we just make them our prayer. If we'll read them with conviction and just ask the Lord to give us the faith to believe that they are true and to live it out in all that we do. Let's read these words together, nice and loud, out loud, please. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything. In the heavenly realms and on earth, he made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church and this church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead so he is first in everything for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled everything to himself that's the good news the good news is that he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross this includes you who were once far away from God you were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions but yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single thought. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it together. Don't drift away, Paul says, from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world. And I, Paul, not me, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. And that's your work and our work too. Let's do it together. Praise God.
bow our heads. And I know that some of you might find yourself feeling like you are at the very end today. I pray for you right now that in a way that only the Spirit of God is capable of doing, that he will breathe breath and life into you today and give you hope and give you peace and faith to believe and trust in him no matter how difficult it may be for you today. He is a good God, a good Father, and he loves you and he cares for you. And victory and forgiveness is available to you. It's available because of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you do that work in us, and we pray you do that work through us as we leave here right now. Will you help us to shine brightly in this world and in this community for your name, Lord, helping us in every moment, in every situation and circumstance to give glory to you, to live our lives for you as if Jesus were living through us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.